Hi, everybody. It's Charlie. And again, this is To Hell and Back, the podcast. Um, and you're the, this is uh, um, being broadcast live on March 6th from Massachusetts, even though it's being done, so confusing, on February 28th um, from Massachusetts. So, um, uh, but this makes it possible for me to continue the conversation that I started in the last podcast with Andrea. Um, Andrea, you're there? Yes, I'm here. Yeah, well, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's um, good to be back. So if you, if you didn't listen, I mean, I guess you can get something out of this if you just listen to this by itself, but um, it'll make the most sense if you have listened to the previous podcast, uh, which if you go into the list of podcasts on my website, it'll, it'll list this one as, uh, with Andrea's name, Andrea Rosenhaft. And um, so what we're doing, this is sort of part two of three, of looking, um, talking with Andrea about her experience as having developed um, uh, some problems in her life, um, including anorexia, including uh, features of borderline personality disorder, being in lots of treatments for those things and in and out of some different programs, and at the same time building a life. Um, and so we're trying to learn what happened to her, how did she get through it, um, what has helped her, and, and, and in particular we're going to talk today some about um, when she got to the point in her life when she came to a hospital unit and um, ended up starting to learn DBT. Um, but then next week we're going to also get to later in her life when she got to a place where she accessed a, a different treatment, transference-focused psychotherapy, a psychodynamic therapy developed by Kernberg. Um, so, Andrea, I wanted, um, I wanted to reach back a little bit into last week's conversation and just tell you some of the things that stayed with me. Um, and here, you know, you don't have to have any thoughts about them, but uh, and you may have some thoughts about what, where, where you went after last week, but I just made, I put down a few notes um, a while ago today about what had really stuck with me and what I wanted to say back to you um, okay. before we go forward. Um, well, for one thing, um, it just stays with me, everything, I, it's sort of as a central theme, and I said this at the end of last time, and you said it, um, but just how profoundly important it was, unfortunately, that you had no one to talk to, um, that, you're, that, that in your childhood, it wasn't, I mean, your parents were each functional in each and in some different ways, though your father was more obviously dysfunctional than your mother, but, and, and he was difficult. But, um, but one central theme around all of it is even with a mother who was pr really brilliant, and quite resourceful and capable as it was a survivor in life and kept getting back on her feet uh, and was warm and compassionate to you, that she was still, even she was not the type of person that you would sit down and sort of talk at the end of a school day about how you felt and what happened interpersonally. Um, she was probably at work um, during those times. But um, yeah. Um, is this, you know, is when this I was, well, when I was 13, um, 
you know, my, my dad lost his job due to the drinking and right. my mom opened a knitting, knitting and needlepoint store, um, which she did in the neighborhood so she could be close to us, you know, the home. But, um, you know, she was tired when she got home every day. And, um, you know, it, it just, it, it didn't come across to me that talking, you know, among family members was not normal. You yeah. know, this is the only normal I knew. And right. um, my big escape was reading. I was a voracious reader, um, you know, when I was a child. And my parents were happy to feed that, um, you know, buying books for me and, and things. And, and, you know, that was my escape. You know, I kind of shut right. myself in my room and I read. Um, you know, and, and you could learn a ton. I mean, reading as much as you read about, about uh, relationships and feelings. I mean, you don't, you don't have to have these conversations always with parents. Um, it just struck me that uh, even with that, and you sort of let me know at one point that you pretty much read everything written about the Bobsy twins. Yeah. Um, that has, the Bobsy twins were always solving another mystery. Um, and so very cool stories. And I haven't gone back to look at them since you mentioned it. I actually thought I might just read a couple of them, but I didn't. But, um, but you know, there's kind of like that would be another place when you're a voracious reader uh, you can, I mean, if you grew up these days and you read all of the Harry Potter books as a little kid, you'd learn a ton about relationships um, and feelings uh, and things, too. But um, you just didn't get that in, at home, per se. And the reason it becomes important in retrospect, um, it wouldn't have had to go this way, but that by the time you were a teenager, um, you're... You, you, as you explained last week, you know, you really had developed a language of emotions, uh, which is a complicated thing to do, which is to really sense what's going on inside yourself and realize that it's an emotion and that emotions have implications and emotions have causes and you can do things with emotions and you can suppress emotions or you could express emotions or, you know, that just wasn't a facility that, you know, you developed facility with, uh, with a softball and with basketball uh, and with words and language and school, but you didn't develop facility in close-in relationships with emotions and things from the way you described right. it la- last week. And right. I think that, that that left you also, I think, putting it together um, in retrospect, co- confused about emotions and confused about your body image which is a very intimate thing and very personal thing and confused about sexuality, which is a very intimate thing and very personal thing. And all of these things are kind of like, I don't know, they strike me as generically traveling together. Um, um, Next thing I wanted to say, Andrea, is that as, as a person who has developed, who's been, who's, used both of the treatments that you're talking about, but I'll talk about within the DBT world, that there's really two big ways people have of regulating emotions. Uh, first, it requires actually having emotions that you're aware you have. But one way is um, a whole set of ways of observing them and allowing them to be 
allowing emotions to be and, and giving vent to them, giving expression to them in your own mind, giving expression to other people. But it's sort of like the opening up way of coping with emotions. And then there's the controlling way of dealing with emotions, which is to find various ways to curb your emotions, to suppress your emotions, to go against your emotions, um, hide them even from yourself. And, and they're, all, they're all legitimate ways to do it. But it seems like your way of coping with life in, in so many ways was um, more skewed towards the control end of the spectrum. Uh, as opposed to the opening up end of the spectrum. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. I mean, very, very skewed towards the controlling end, I think. Mm. Yeah, it makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense. In almost every aspect, um, Mm -hmm. you know, of my life, basically, at that point. Yeah. You said you used to get high as a teenager or you were using pot. When you would get high, would you be more expressive or more out there, more open, more connected to people? Um, it would help me relax and ease up. I think so. Yeah, it helped me socialize a little bit more um, and hang out, um, hang out with people and be more at ease with people. I think so, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. Um, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, uh, especially at college, um, mm. you know, when you still, I think when the dorms weren't policed as heavily as they are now and you could, right. you know, sit in the common room and get high with people and, you know, drink a little and, um, right. and things like that. Um, I was more um, open to doing that rather than kind of shutting myself in, in, in my room, in my dorm room. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. one, one thing in, in this part of the conversation we had that really struck me and stayed with me, um, surprised me a little bit. But when you said last time we talked that, you know, at that stage of your life and into your 20s, that you would be, and even when you played a lot of softball and sports and, you, and, and that were like um, co-educational, that you weren't getting asked out on dates, you know? Yeah, that was, really, um, that was in, once I was playing in the advertising league. Oh, yeah. In Manhattan, yeah well, after I graduated when I was working my first job in advertising. And, right. Um, right. And that would have been a natural place to be asked out or to connect or to go out with somebody. And, and I was just, it must, I mean, first, I don't want to just bring it up and have you feel pained about that. I'm sure you've dealt with it in various ways, but it just seems, it surprises me a little bit and makes me think it had mostly to do with how you regulated emotions because, you know, I, I remember you from 1990, our, our inpatient program when you entered, which is where we're about to get to again. And, um, you know, you were an appealing person. You were an attractive person. You were an athletic person. You were a smart person. And if you were playing sports with people there, it surprised me to hear that you wouldn't be asked out by, by either man or woman, uh, depending on who the people are that you're playing with. Um, um, yeah, I mean, at that, at that point it was both. Um, I just, I think there was something, um, 
you know, I just, I was actually doing some writing um, for a piece I'm trying to um, submit in between and, um, you know, something that comes out um, spontaneously in writing, as it often does, is that, you know, a lot of times I was just terrified of my dad. Um, And I think... Mm. He just made me, you know, just because of the way he reacted, again, not violently ever hitting us, but the words that often stung so much. Um, And um, I think that men in, in, you know, because of that, men in general just scared me. Mm. I just don't know how to act around them. Mm. Mm. So even though you would be playing softball and you might, talk sometimes it might be that you that you didn't know how to be with them and they probably didn't therefore know how to be with you if you didn't know how right. to be with them right mm-hmm. because of how i was interacting with them so right I, it might it, it you know obviously it was unconscious whatever signals i was sending out um mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and i also used to joke you know, that I didn't know how to flirt, which mm. is true. Mm. I just never learned how to flirt. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so coming up on being, I guess that was around, uh, you know, 23, 24 years old, and I was still a virgin, which was something I felt deeply ashamed about. Mm. Mm. Um, That's tough. Yeah, um. and, um, you know, so everything was converging, mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, yeah, I could see how that would happen, and you were, you know, you had found ways to cope with, you know, kind of, um, I mean, well, you started to emerge into ways to cope, and, you know, it had been smoking pot and stuff like that, but also starting to use some drugs and also the anorexia once the doctor prescribed you a stimulant and you lost 40-some pounds and realized, oh, I could do this. Um, <coughs> and then you're kind of... And then, then I different. had started seeing that therapist and about uh, becoming increasingly depressed and I made that kind of secret suicide attempt and... Um, right, right. And then I started cutting. right. Right. Now, you were really in, starting to be in a tailspin there in your 20s. And, um, you know, another thing, I just wanted to say one more thing, and this is not something that requires much reflection. It was just an emotional response I had. That you, and you said it a couple times, and you didn't say it in a particularly accusatory way. But uh, as I let it sink in, I thought, you know, you were saying this thing about this therapist um, continued to see you while you lost over 40 pounds and, and got to the point where you were sort of under 100 pounds as a person five feet, six inches tall and didn't say anything, uh, watched you yeah. shrink away and didn't say stuff. I just, I thought, oh, my God, um, how did that happen? What's, what's going on there? Um, you would, and not that that would necessarily have made some big difference right there, but it just seemed like, some signal was not being received by that therapist. Um, yeah. That's easy for me to say because I don't know the person, don't know who it is, and I don't know, don't want to know who it is. But 
But I, and, and it isn't like I've been uh, that I've never made mistakes. But it just sounds like wow, some, you were shrinking away right in front of somebody. Um, now look, I wanted I wanted us to get now to um, where we left off last time, um, which was after you told a number of things you did, including your bouts with trying to cope with anorexia and being in and out of many many hospital programs for that and uh, it being quite a struggle. And then you uh, made a suicide attempt and then you were in the hospital and, and at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. And then you were sent to our program in White Plains, um, which happened to be our DBT inpatient program. By the way, it could have just been equally likely that you could have instead been sent to our, the other program that we had, which was for transference-focused therapy. I mean, it's just a matter of chance, probably, unless somebody steered you towards the DBT program. Um, I don't know. But then you, I mean, you ended up in DBT program for 10 months. So can you say a little about, yeah, how did that happen and what was it like for you to, to come there and start to be exposed to that type of inpatient program and to DBT? So, um, yeah, I don't know... I don't know if it was chance that I wound up on the DBT unit or the other unit. Um, so, um, or if the the treatment team at Lenox, at Lenox Hill deliberately wanted me, thought you know DBT would be better for, for me. I I yeah. have no idea. No. So, it could be. That's how it would that. happen. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. so I remember, you know, getting to the unit and, um, and, um, um, I mean, the first thing I remember is, um, you know, the hospital's on, you know, beautiful grounds (laughs) and just being so impressed by that. But, um, GBT... You know, again, I had no idea what it was. I had never heard of it before. And, um, you know, obviously inpatient is a um, very condensed, uh, you know, um, intensive atmosphere to get it, which is a great way to, um, um, to, to be exposed to it for the first time. There's, um, you know, individual therapy, there's, um, I think, you know, daily groups, there's homework, there's uh, the diary cards. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was um, a terrific way to learn it and be exposed to it and all the modules just keep running um, over and over again, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as long as you're there. So... um, it was a, a terrific a way to learn all the skills and be able to practice the skills um, continuously for basically that long a period of time. Um, and I did, they did really get a good, uh, I would say background in it. That's not the right word I'm thinking of, but um, mm-hmm. You know, I continue, even after I left the unit and I attended the outpatient program and left the outpatient program, DPT is 
um, something I've continued to use, you know, until this day for um, a lot of um, distressing events and not Mm -hmm. so distressing events that have um, come up into my life. So it's a very, it's, it's a terrific, the skills are just not for anybody, um, you know, particularly with BPD. And I know it's been expanded into a lot of different other diagnoses, but it's really for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they can be helpful for, but the, the one thing that struck me about the unit itself and not just um, not being a DVT unit was that um, I'm recalling that it was, I don't remember how many patients there were on the unit. It was mostly women. There might have been like one man there. But mm. it was one of the places I, up until that point in my life, that I felt the safest. Um, mm-hmm. The women, a lot of us had been through the same things in our lives up until that point. Some of us had been sexually abused. I had not. But we all understood each other. Mm. Um, and mm. we could talk about things that we had been through without someone invalidating us. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and after the formal therapy was done and after a lot of the, you know, groups were done and we would, you know, hang out in the common room and we would talk and no one would ever say to you or me who or whomever, no, that's silly or no, you're wrong or you couldn't have been feeling that. Mm. And mm. the sense of um, bonding and understanding that grew among the people that had been there for together for, you know, a good part of the time that, that I was there um, was just, it made me feel safe and understood in a mm. way that I had never before. Mm. And that was mm. just, you know, just as much a part of the healing process as were the skills. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, probably the focus on skills helped the staff have a philosophy so that they encouraged validation more than um, telling people that they're doing stuff wrong. I mean, that just sort of went with the territory. And so, um, but the experience itself of being in a community of people after, you know, your life, um, you had been in other communities of people, but this was very unique then um, about how people interacted with each other and, and you could actually say stuff, take a risk to say stuff and have people not put you down. Um, or call you silly. That's just that's a huge learning experience as itself. Right. Even if we even if we weren't teaching skills, you know. Um, so of course, for me, having worked hard to develop that unit and work with the staff there, and then with the patients that came, it's very nice to hear that. I wonder if the. Um, uh, if if the if that mm, so I want to ask because I'm really wanting in in the in the spirit of this podcast 
where, where I'm hoping that people are absorbing tools to use in their lives. And you said that stuff about skills. Um, can you remember in what ways it was also specifically helpful to uh, have either to have skills in general to learn and to practice uh, or certain ones in particular or certain categories in particular that were helpful to you? Well, the one I probably use the most is radical acceptance. Mm. Mm. And, what, and what, in, in what way or what are you remembering about what, how that works for you? Because there's so many things in life that don't go the way you planned, basically. Mm-hmm. And little or big. And it's just, it's just a, an ability or the practice of accepting that things are beyond your control or my control. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard. Um, it's very hard. Especially for someone who made a practice of, no pun intended, of, of controlling everything I could, especially through my eating, and continue right. to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So it took a lot of practice for me to be able to um, let go and learn that skill um, mm-hmm. still, and still practice it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there are some things, maybe the bigger things are more difficult than, the, you know, smaller things are a little easier, but, and sometimes I, I still have to remind myself, hey, you know, you have to accept this because this is not under your control. Yeah, that's huge. For someone who comes in through life coping with so many ways of controlling things, um, whether it's perfectionistically or just to be in control of stuff, whether it's through eating or other things. And really, that's a huge, radical acceptance is almost like the uh, antithesis of that strategy, because it's, at least it's a strategy that begins with, um, I was just using it in, a while ago today in a session with somebody who was trying to get it, um, because it isn't the same as being resigned to reality. Right. It isn't the same as just kind of saying, okay, I'll put up with that because I know you can't change things. There's something deeper about it where you actually from the inside accept that, you know, I, I sort of wish things weren't this way, but they were this way. They were deeply this way. They were this way before I could have even made, have made a choice about it. And so um, it's just let me just let myself completely from the inside accept this situation and it's very different than eating or not eating the right amount of food it it would be accepting things about your body accepting things about your appetite accepting things about what's possible for you um it's really um it's interesting that you bring that one up it is a common one for people to remember i think in dbt um 
and it because it isn't just a skill it's a whole principle yeah uh, it's kind of a deep principle and um, overlaps with a lot of other types of treatment um, um, like an example um, you know I don't remember this was a number of years ago and I was talking to my therapist my psychiatrist about what was the ideal weight that I wanted to be not mm. not a you know totally added the you know um, totally you know crazy number totally really mm-hmm. low number like you know a hundred or something but mm-hmm. um, that I'd like to be at you know thinking that this was uh, a number that that I thought I would you know look you know nice at and stuff like that and she just looked at me and said no she goes you can't function at that number um being your age you know uh above 50 and after men you know postmenopausal and things like that and mm-hmm. it took me a while it took me you know close to a year um to agree with her or just not just agree with her but to accept that she was right to accept in my own mind and come to a deeper understanding that that um, physically and um, emotionally and um, mentally um, with some of the other physical conditions going on in my body that that was not the ideal way for me. Although, yes, I like I looked at that, at that number mm-hmm. at, with right. all those other things combined. There was another number about 10 pounds heavier that best suited me um, in those other aspects of my life that I came to realize were more important about mm-hmm. fitting into a certain size pants or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh That was a big one. <laughs> that's, that's a huge one. I was just, I didn't, that's a really big one. And um, it affects not just people with anorexia, but that's a very common one. You know, I was recently doing a training in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and I, I have a lot of friends there because I've done a lot of training there. And I was walking along the street with several people, a man and about three or four women, and people were talking about exactly this topic because the, all of us were in our, you know, mm, I don't think there was anyone under 60. So it was like 60, 70-year-old people. And, um, and there's something about one of the women said, um, you know, uh, something about, uh, a famous, some famous model that was older that now showed that she could maintain a very low weight as if that was a great accomplishment. And this woman said just so naturally, like, she said, how sad it is that that person, that model thinks that that's an accomplishment, you know, because, you know, our bodies are different now and we need more weight. And they all had more weight, but none of them were over overweight, but they were all sort of lovely but um but they weren't skinny they weren't thin the ways the way a lot of people's goals are and i i think it's just really hard to accept uh one's body i mean the studies of teenage girls i think there's at least 90 percent uh that think there's something wrong with their bodies yeah um, you know it's just really hard to accept we have a, a culture that reinforces not accepting. And so you were, you were in the thick of that. 
but so that that would be a really important skill. I'm glad you got that and still have that. What about, um, do you remember using mindfulness skills at all or were those a little too uh, abstract or hard to actualize or, you know, the way some um, people talk about? Those were, those were difficult um, for me on the unit. I've used them since then. Uh, those are still a little hard. I, um, for me, I, I have tried at various times um, since then, and um, I still I still find that a little difficult. Um, you know, I I know you know stay in the present and um, and um, in the here and now, and um, mm-hmm. and I I do keep that um, in my mind about staying in the present. It it is mm-hmm. difficult. Those 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 skills are 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 still difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Getting it's getting easier, um, mm-hmm. but it does take it does take a lot of effort for me. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. only I don't think I was able to understand what it meant, the true meaning of um, of mindfulness. Um, mm-hmm. You know, back back then, about mm-hmm. staying in the present and staying in the here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only in the last, um, you know, maybe between five and ten years that I've been able to understand um, the importance of what staying in the present um, and staying in the here and now means. Mm-hmm. It was a little mm-hmm. too abstract and yeah, esoteric for me to grasp at that point. Yeah, I get concerned about that because a lot of time goes into teaching that to people. And um, <laughs> then I would run into people like yourself. I didn't happen to run into you, but I'd, ru- I'd run into people who'd been through DBT and ask, well, what do you remember from it? And the most common two skills people would mention, one was radical acceptance. And the other one was, was an interpersonal skill, dear man. Um, I don't know if you remember that. The yeah, name of that skill. I remember it. I don't remember what all the letters yeah. stand for. How, how, yeah. how to ask for things for what you want. But, yeah, um, yeah. But, but then if people wouldn't remember. It was as if it was too murky or not defined enough, like what it meant to practice mindfulness. And yet, in some ways, they're the deepest ones of the whole program. Um, and they're kind of like the core of the rest of the skills, but you know, it's hard to get that across and it is, it is easier as you get older. I've found yeah. for a lot of people. I what mean, the other, the oh, other module ahead. that um, I remembered, you know, very uh, clearly um, from the time I left was distress tolerance, which I used a great deal. Mm. Um, mm. You know, um, just things to get me through the immediate, immediacy of the super difficult times mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and um, you know a lot of things I learned were snapping rubber bands holding ice cubes mm-hmm. um, exercising was a big one for me um, mm-hmm. you know, I go I mean I, I did you know um, I would run when I when I lived at the halfway house I'd, I'd use rollerblades um, you know, I'd, I'd take my bike out, 
you know, things like that. And, um, you know, anything that just got me away from the physical situation, from the mental, um, ruminating, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, mm-hmm. Later, um, right after my mom died, I got, you know, a cat. And then a couple of years later, I got another cat. That was incredibly soothing for me, just um, caring for them, petting them, you know, being with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that module was, um, was a big one for me. You know, what's interesting in hearing you, and, I, and I've thought of this, of course, before, but this makes an obvious connection. When you say those things, every one of the things you just mentioned, from rollerblading to petting a cat, they, they all do actually accomplish bringing you into the here and the now. Yeah. Um, out, out of rumination, out of whatever other emotional things are going on. If they really work, you're, you're distracting yourself by doing some activity or creating some sensation or doing some soothing thing. Each of those things does have the property of letting your mind just settle on what you're doing right now. And sometimes it's intense things, like ice, ice is an intense thing, it's a, an intense sensation. Um, but it, it is a way, it's a pathway to being mindful, at least for the moment, um, to, to get through a bad period. Um, so you remember those. Those are real, really, yeah, those are other ones that people sometimes remember, especially distracting, but those are really good examples. Um, and then there was, uh, the, the, there was the set of skills that was called emotion regulation. Mm-hmm. And prob- probably the, one that, the ones that people remember best out of that module, and I wonder if they were useful for you, was uh, one was acting opposite your emotional urge. Well, that was one of them. <coughs> Do you remember that? I remember the skill. I remember the name of the skill. Um, that, that wasn't um, one of my favorites. It was, mm-hmm. it was just, um, again, it was kind of abstract. I mean, you know, it was, it was kind of the same as um, half smile kind of thing, just by um, mm. kind of thinking of, um, you know, acting opposite. I just, I needed more direction, I think, you know, mm. rather than just say act opposite. It was like, but, what, but how do I do it? What should I do? You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Yeah. It needs to be made really specific. And I think sometimes people find it helpful if they realize that the acting opposite skill is the same thing as what we call exposure treatment. Like mm-hmm. if you get thrown, thrown from a horse and you never want to get on a horse again because you're frightened, but you want, it, you want your fear to go down, you act opposite by getting back right. on the horse. You know, or or a public speaking phobia. You know, where you get up and publicly speak, or or a dog phobia, where you approach a dog. All of these things are the same exactly as acting opposite. But I think we're better at teaching them than we used to. But I think that one used to be a little hard to get across to people. Um, and there was another one, Andrea, that I would think would be one of the most one of the ones that you that you didn't grow up learning by nature. 
was uh, in that module also was um, allowing your emotions to come and go like a wave. Um, just let your emotions be. It's like allowing them to run around. Uh, and if they're intense, they're intense. And if they go in one direction, they go in one direction. If, they, if you don't like the direction they go in, you just follow them. But you, it's kind of like letting your emotions come and go like a wave, as, which is the opposite of controlling them, mm-hmm. um, making them go away, putting a curb on them, you know, distracting yourself to something else. This is really like fully exposing yourself to emotions that you have. Uh, and I wonder if you remember that or if that, makes, if that rings a bell about going back to that era of your life and treatment. Yeah, I mean, I remember... Um you know, letting them come and go like a wave. When you say like a wave, it, it kind of brings it back. Yeah. Um, that probably would have terrified, <laughs> terrified me back then. Yeah. Um, That'd be easier um, now, wouldn't it? I'm sorry, what? It would be easier now, I'm guessing. It would be easier. It would be much easier now. Much easier. Yeah. 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 Can you tell me a little, I mean, I, what stands out to me about what you've said about that exposure in your treatment, exposure to DBT, is the first thing, which is the, not the DBT part per se, but being exposed to being in a safe community of people. I, I'm just, it just sinks into me that that must have been huge for you. It was I mean, huge. You're not running around playing softball. You're not, there's no other ways that you're trying to be a good good you're just sitting around with a group of people at in a way that you probably had never done in your life i mean some people do that in their dorms in college um with some people but it's not always safe but to to be in a whole community for the better part of a year and to just be talking you must have sort of subterraneanly been learning things every day without knowing it um yeah i mean i i I was. I mean, I was. I was learning how to um, open up. I was learning, uh, you know, little by little. I mean, you know, like my new, my my new baby steps to, uh, you know, um, hear people let themselves be vulnerable, and I was learning by uh, modeling to. Um, mm-hmm. you know, wonder if I could be vulnerable and let myself be a little bit vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was um, watching, you know, people form friendships and, you know, letting myself form friendships. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then, uh, you know, I just had this uh, disastrous relationship with a therapist and mm-hmm. you know you and um Cindy and um the other staff on the unit um because at Lennox Hill when they diagnosed me with um VPD and uh you know this was nineteen ninety, the prognosis was so poor. Mm. And mm. you know, this is basically what they told me and, you know, my parents and um, mm. you, the way the, you know, the staff on this unit 
you know, treated us was, I mean, was was with such a total, um, you know, a hundred, you know, such a, the opposite, and you know, it was it was like you really wanted to work with us, and you really mm-hmm. had hope for us, even at that point, and mm-hmm. um, and it kind of um. You know, it just, it made us feel cared about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes, so, I think um, that, so that would be, if, if you're in a community of people that are talking to each other and if, and you feel safe there, and if you if your experience was that the staff had hope and cared about you and didn't share the stigma or the pessimism in the field right. in general, and I would say that's true because the people who worked there on that program did not have to work on that program. That hospital, right. by the way, by the way, there were eight. You were wondering earlier. There were eighteen patients on that unit, um, okay. and and there was a similar number of nursing staff, um, and then there were therapists, and um, and in the hospital there were thirteen inpatient units, and if people wanted to work with borderline personality disorder, they could come to our program. So little by little, we just ended up with people who really liked working with people that had a lot of emotion or that had a lot of difficulty with emotion. And so it was kind of just a a natural selection process. One of the things I was just thinking with what you said about the instilling hope, that that's a huge part of treatment in any model of treatment uh, when you're somebody who feels that there's no hope or you've been through a lot of treatments. And um, I just, you know, I'm just glad that you're saying that because I think also it's very hard if you're a family member, like a, a, a sibling or a parent of somebody with this kind of disorder. It's hard to keep up hope when you keep running into a brick wall or somebody keeps going in the hospital or things go downhill or you hear bad stuff in the world about borderline personality disorder. And, and yet it's really important to maintain the hope. So it's a huge part of the treatment is, is the family finding a way to take care of themselves so that they can look after their family member. You didn't really get it that way, though. Your mother sounds like remained devoted and passionate uh, and compassionate. Uh, about you, but this is a different thing. Um, you happen to find a place. I'm just thinking what it would have been like for you to go from one of these eating disorder programs to another to another, and then Lenox Hill after a suicide attempt, Lenox Hill Hospital, and then if you had just been sent out again or to another typical hospital program. So I, I like to think that this was a turning point for you. It was. It definitely was. It was, you know, it was one. It was one of them, and um, it was one key one. I can think of probably one other, um, and that was when I, you know, found um, TFT, and um, I really, um, you know, if I haven't had, hadn't had, you know, both of those turning points, the one, you know, the stay on um, on this unit and finding um, transference-focused psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't think I would have survived. 
and I say that with um, with um, the utmost honesty. Mhm. Mhm. Were you? Did you go through a lot of times, even once you were in treatment with DBT and beyond, where you really didn't want to survive, or you didn't think you would make it? Yes. Yeah. 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 So there was nothing. There wasn't some uh, transformation that happened that took away uh, the sadness or the pain or the uh, whatever it was. Uh, what was it? What would make you want to die? Um, I think it was, I mean, you know, as much as we just talked about hope, it was just the absence of hope. And it was just, um, um, you know, things just going wrong one after the other. Um, it mm. was, um, um, just pain, you know, unbearable pain, um, just feeling that you're a burden on your family and that you're never going to get better. Is it that you're um, just all, that the, the pain is the pain of just being in a terrible mental state, uh, terrible mood, uh, depressed mood, uh, anxious mood, uh, despair, um, just thinking yeah. there's no point like that. Yeah, despair, depressed, there's no point to living. Mm-hmm. Um, just things are never going to get better. You just can't, there's, you're just such at the bottom of such a deep, deep, um, dark abyss that there's no way out. Mm. Nothing mm. is working. Medication's not working. Therapy's not working. Mm-hmm. You just, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I'm just thinking in a way how uh, in DBT, the, in a way, the mantra, because it's the core of the treatment, the idea that really what the goal of treatment is to help somebody build a life, um, build a life that they feel is worth living, and how, how that's just sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum from where most people are when they enter, and, and how, you know, you just don't get magically out of there. And it's yeah. just a ter- terrible that people including yourself, are for so long in such a state as that. Um, and in some ways amazing that more people don't kill themselves. Um, yeah. When you consider how much uh, despair is there and how much people don't have hope. What kept you moving forward before you ended up in transference-focused therapy, which was another turning point but let's see you you went through these this inpatient program for you something like 10 months you said um right right was it, and then and then into a outpatient or day treatment program where you would go each day for a few right. hours and and then um when i left uh when i left the inpatient program at the same time i went to the day treatment program I went also to a halfway house. Uh-huh. And, and you told me in between these meetings we were having on uh, air, I guess, uh, that you were in that halfway house for about three years. Right. 
Yeah, that's a long time. So um, t- tell me during that era of things, what helped you during that time that your life was made up of being in a halfway house and then going to um, a day treatment program for a, for a long time? Well, um, I had a wonderful counselor at the halfway house. She mm. actually had been diagnosed with BPD herself. She had disclosed to me she had tried to uh, commit suicide by shooting herself with her father's rifle and had mm. wound up on the um, psychoanalytic uh, long-term unit for two years. Mm. Mm. So I, we kind of uh, bonded, if you know, um, mm. and um, became pretty close in the three years I was there. And I watched her while I was there um, go back to nursing school and mm-hmm. get married. Mm. And... Um, not while I was there, but we kept in touch for a little while after I left, and she, I know she had two um, beautiful children. And then eventually, mm-hmm. um, you know, we lost touch, but while I was there, she, you know, gave me a lot of hope for the future. If she could do it, and she was in the hospital for, you know, over twice as long as I was, and she uh, made this really serious suicide attempt, then maybe I could do it. Wow. You know, and while I was at the uh, day program, you know, you would come over, Cindy would come over. Um, That's where I met Perry Hoffman and um, Carol Sandak, who would become my uh, therapist, Mm -hmm. and some other friends that, who I've actually remained in touch with all these years. Mm. And um, so those, you know, those years were, um, you know, turned out pretty, pretty well. Mm. Um, you know, those, I think it was two or three years. You know, how wonderful that you happened to be at a, in a, in a halfway house at a place where there was somebody like that person that you could mm-hmm. connect to and that, could be a model for you because not just because of being in some way, you know, hopeful about you or inspirational or something, but actually have gone through hell uh, themselves. Um, yeah. And then started to build a life and, and that you were connected to and that you could talk to. It's just like a perfect formula. It's like the opposite yeah. of a perfect storm, you know. Um, could you say something? This may be a little personal uh, compared to other people who might listen to the podcast because they didn't know Cindy. But some of them who've listened to a lot of the podcasts know that Cindy was my best friend. And uh, for many years we worked together and that I devoted one of the podcasts to uh, telling about her. Um, what, what impact did she make on you? What, what was your connection? Because I know it was at least at some point an important one. Um, she was one of my, I mean, she was just a really nice person. She was one of the most um, caring people um, I've ever known. Um, mm-hmm. That was not 
part of my family. Um, she just had this gift um, mm-hmm. as a therapist. I mean, as a psychologist, she could just, you know, she just knew the right thing to say. She just was, she had this incredible sense of humor, but mm-hmm. she was a sharpshooter. You know, she could, she, she, she told you like it was too. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, um, you know, she knew when you were, you know, giving her the, you know, you know, giving her ball and she would call you on it. And, mm-hmm. but, but she would, she would be, you know, she would be there for you, um, supporting you, um, you know, the next minute. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I remember, you know, one, you know, one day at the at the outpatient um, at the day program, I just was having a really hard time, and she just came in with me and surprised me with this like little stuffed moose, <laughs> and um, I still have it actually. Really? And, um, yeah, and. Um, she just said, I know you can do it, you know, mm. and, um, mm. you know, and later when I um, decided to go back to graduate school, you know, she just was there for me the whole time and became um, a mentor for me, basically. Mm. Um, I went, you know, towards that, that kind of um, profession, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, um I remember being in tears because I had to, um, uh, for my statistics class, um, you know, choose a research project, which I, you know, chose to do at New York Hospital, and I submitted a um, proposal and got turned down and was hysterical, and she's going, don't worry, everybody gets turned down the first time, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, she was just... Yeah, she was a gifted person, wasn't she? She was. But you, I mean, but, yeah. But you, but you also, and I knew that I knew because I knew from her that she would talk about you in such a caring way too. So I knew that there was a special connection that that formed. I think she had some other special connection, but it definitely happened with you. And I'm really glad that it helped see you beyond i mean you had you had encounters with certain people i mean the that's what i'm taking out of this conversation is that the healing that went on during those years was the healing of being in different communities that allowed you to connect with certain people and those certain people could be inspirations to you or a model to you or a support to you in unique ways and it just was rich with a lot of those possibilities. Somehow you allowed yourself to do that because there are some people who go through those programs that uh, bail out. Uh, it's just there's too many painful things. You probably mm-hmm. knew such people, you know, that just can't, they can't, they quit or they just find, they, they just get stuck in a trap sort of. And you somehow kept relating through this. Um, you kept the possibility open. Um, and you and you stayed. It's what's amazing as I think about you, Andrea, right now is that from what you've said, you live within a block or two of where that day program was. 
Is that right? Or yeah, I mean, I bought an apartment um, after I left um, the halfway house. Yeah. Um, got a really good deal um, on a very nice building, mm-hmm. and I'm still still here. <laughs> there you are. Yeah. And what used to be the day program is a became at least for a long time a container store. I remember still is. driving past. Driving past yep. it when I came to White Plains because I lived up the hill from there. Yeah, um, it still is a container store. It's a container store. Well, it was sort of a different kind of container store at the time, I guess, um, when you think about it, how many people yeah. were contained there. Um, <laughs> we're, we've got just a couple minutes left, and then we have next week. Um, and so I, I just want to ask you uh, to reflect between now and next week. Of, of the era of your life that we're talking about now, w- the things that made the most difference in being helpful to you, and you've said a lot of them uh, very memorably by now for me to hear this, and of course it all has special meaning for me because I knew you and also I, I knew a lot of the people and places you're talking about, but I'm hoping that people um, are able to pick up on different things that they can take away from this. But if you between now and next week have certain reflections on, on um, a certain stand, standout situation, a certain conversation, a certain person, a certain group of people, um, a certain, um, I don't know, nodal point, it'd be interesting to hear what they are. Uh, it's a unique opportunity to hear from someone who's as articulate as you. Um, and, and then I figure that next week I'm going to st- ask you to tell us about sort of what went on beyond that era right then, and then you must have gone on to graduate school and so on, and then, and then how you ended up in a second treatment of a different type, transference-focused therapy, and really eager to hear uh, what that was like or what that's been like and, and, and how it was different and what it offered you. I think um, it's really important for people to know that there's a lot of different options. Um, okay. And they're real, they're really, they can be quite different. Um, so anyway, I, I'm seeing that we are right at the end of our time. So thanks again for talking with me. And um, we'll do this again um, next week, which for people listening to the podcast means it'll be live on uh, March 13th at four o'clock uh, and with the call-in number that's on my website. Okay. So Andrea, thank you. Have a very good week. Thank you too, Charlie. You too. Okay. Take good care. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.